The scripture reading for this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we spent the last three weeks looking at touchstones of gospel culture. We said there were three indicators that a church is growing in uh, gospel culture. The first is wholehearted love for Jesus. The second is open-hearted love for one another. And the third is that a church is increasingly being characterized as a people whose hope is anchored in heaven. That's gospel culture, the shared experience of God's grace by undeserving sinners. Gospel culture results when people take to heart gospel doctrine, the message of God's grace for undeserving sinners. So the message produces the culture if the message is taken to heart. And this morning and next morning, we're, uh, next week, we're going to look at two, two areas of our heart or two concerns of our heart or two ways in which our hearts resist the message of the gospel. This morning, our money, and next week, our time. The grace of God is meant to elicit a generous devotion to Christ and his purposes in the world. Whether that has to do with our wealth, whether it has to do with our time, the grace of God is meant to elicit a response of generosity. Now, this morning, the goal is not to get you to give more money to Grace Church. The goal is to get you to see that the grace of God is meant to elicit a generosity of heart to Christ and his purposes in the world. 
It certainly includes Grace Church, but his purpose is so much bigger than Grace Church. What we learn from our text this morning is that generosity to Jesus is never, ever, ever simply a matter of readjusting our priorities, not first. Generosity toward Jesus is never simply a matter of readjusting our priorities. It is first a matter of reorienting our hearts toward Jesus and his generosity toward us. So with that in mind, let's jump into the text. We'll consider it under the following three headings, the anxious heart, the darkened heart, and the generous heart. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would help us to see that that it's never a matter of becoming more generous by changing our priorities. What is never simply a matter of changing our minds. It's a matter of having our hearts changed. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to grasp more deeply your radical generosity of heart toward us, that we might, because of your grace and your love, respond with a radical generosity toward you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, the anxious heart. Uh, The text tells us, really, as a whole, that we can be anxious with little or we can be anxious with much. Whether we have a little bit of resources or whether we have a lot of resources, we can be anxious. You see Jesus concerned about anxiety through this passage. Take a look at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Jump down to verse 31. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? And then verse 34 Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. That word anxious is used in a number of different places in the New Testament, but another place where it's used is in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus says, or when we read of uh, Mary and Martha with Jesus, and it says that Martha was, and it's the same word translated distracted in Luke chapter 10, Martha was distracted with much serving, or anxious with much serving. And you could think about, I mean, here's Martha with Jesus. Jesus is teaching. Mary gets it. Martha is so anxious with, distracted by much serving that she's missing out entirely on Jesus. You could say she's missing the proverbial forest for the trees. She's so focused in on the cares of the world. The cares of the world at that moment was making sure that Whatever was done, you know, needed to get done. Uh, whatever needed to get done, got done. Jesus is saying, don't be distracted by the cares of the world. Don't be so dialed in on things of this earth that you miss me, is what Jesus would ultimately say. You miss the kingdom of God and my purposes in the world. Verses 19 through 24, at the, at the beginning of the passage, it had more to do with being distracted or anxious because you have much. The temptation to lay up treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven. This passage, the therefore that begins with verse 25, pivots to talking about anxiety around having very little. Where are we going to get clothes to wear? How are we going to have enough food to eat? It's, it's, Jesus is dealing with both ends of the spectrum, as it were, when he deals with this issue of anxiety or what he would consider an inordinate distraction 
for the things of this earth. Now that immediately leads to a question. In my heart, hopefully it did and does in yours as well. What about people who simply don't have enough? I mean, we, we look around our, our city. We, we think about what's happening around the world, the, the stories that we read, the extreme poverty, the extreme need that exists. And we think, well, how can this possibly be true? All these things will be added unto you if you will seek first the kingdom of God. They're in, incredibly um, deep and sincere and, and genuine Christian believers whose lives are devoted to Jesus Christ in places here locally and around the world who are yet in extreme poverty and dealing with great need. What do we do with that? Well, at one level, it is a tragic consequence of the reality of sin in the world. It touches on issues of the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility especially when it comes to places around the world, perhaps where there are those who are in power who are denying the resources that the people in their country need. We can think of any number of dictators around the world where that's happening even right now. I, I think of Haiti, first and foremost. We have friends who we love who are in Haiti who are dealing with this very kind of dynamic. They love Jesus and they are lacking resources. And so there's this mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. There's the reality of suffering and evil that leads to all kinds of, of questions. Here's the thing, though. I think John Stott helps us here a little bit because it's very easy to just, you know, think philosophically about those things. And John Stott kind of pulled us back in and said this. I think it's very helpful. Maybe an oversimplification, but hear the point. Stott said the most basic cause of hunger is not inadequate divine provision, but inequitable human distribution. Can I say that again? The most basic cause of hunger is not inadequate divine provision, but inequitable human distribution. In other words, Stott would say there's plenty of resources on land and plenty of resources in the sea. When you look at the earth as a whole, a big part of the problem is that those of us who have access to it and the means to acquire it do not distribute it with, share it with those around the world who don't. And we live in a world in which that kind of thing is possible. We can distribute resources to anywhere in the world. We can. And Stott would say so often the problem is not that God hasn't provided, but that those of us who have the means aren't distributing. The very same Jesus who said in this passage that God feeds and clothes his children later will say that we must feed the hungry and clothe the naked and that we will be judged accordingly as to whether or not we have done so. So again, this is a much deeper topic than we have to go on here. I want to challenge us to not simply think about this theologically, which is important to do, to see how this touches on bigger issues like divine sovereignty and human responsibility and the mystery of suffering and evil in the world, but to actually break that down into kind of brass tacks and say, okay, that's fine, but what do I have that other people lack that I can share? And there are mechanisms, there are means for doing that if we will but look. 
So we can be anxious whether we have much or we can be anxious if we have little. But what Jesus is getting at here is that at the, I won't say at the root of the anxiety because there's like another level here. And then we're going to get to the root of the heart in a minute. But Jesus would say that behind that anxiety, kind of in a middle place, is what he calls little faith in the passage. So take a look with me at the end of verse 30. I'll read all of it. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And then he says, oh, you of little faith. Now you read that and you're probably thinking, wait a minute. I thought we just needed faith the size of a mustard seed. Right? Isn't it about the object of your faith and not the quantity of your faith? Isn't, isn't that what the Bible teaches? So is Jesus saying you just need more faith when he says to these folks, oh, you of little faith? I wrestled with that one. <laughs> you probably have as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually helps a lot when it comes to understanding this. Lloyd-Jones says concerning Luke chapter 8. That's, Luke chapter 8 is where the disciples are in the boat with Jesus. The storm comes up. The disciples are anxious, <laughs> terrified that they're going to lose their life. And Jesus says to them, where is your faith? I know you have it. You're my disciples. You've trusted me for your salvation. But where is it? You don't need vast quantities of faith. Just a little will do. But where is it? That, Lloyd-Jones says, is the problem in Matthew chapter 6. It's not that we don't have enough faith stored up, but that we don't have enough faith distributed into every area of our life. The men in the boat had faith that Jesus could save them from their sins. They were his disciples. They weren't so sure when it came to his ability to save them from the storm. So the faith that they had wasn't distributed, wasn't being applied in every area of their, of their lives. And if you're a Christian and you're anxious about money, you have faith in Christ for your salvation. But when it comes to God providing for your needs, perhaps not so sure. The faith that God has given you hasn't been pushed out into every area of life. So what does Jesus mean by little faith? Not faith that's limited in quantity, but faith that is limited in scope. When it comes to money, our hearts are anxious often, whether we have too much or too little. We can be gripped by anxiety. We can be consumed, distracted, obsessed by the cares of this world. Our hearts are anxious, but let's turn next to where Jesus goes, which is a little bit deeper, the darkened heart. The darkened heart. Jesus tells a story in this passage about the eyes as a lamp to get to something that's true about what we love. So let's take a look. First, verses 22 and 23. Jesus says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, what does this mean? What Jesus is saying here, think of it this way. If your eyes are working properly and the room that you're in is lit, then you'll be able to move your whole body through that room without bumping into things, knocking things over, etc. 
But if your eyes aren't working properly, even if the whole room is lit, if your eyes are darkened in that sense, then you are in the dark. Your whole body is in the dark. And you're not able to move around and see things as they really are. Now, why would Jesus use that story, that illustration, right here in the middle of his teaching on money? And the answer is picked up in uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 15, another place where he talks about generosity and wealth. And that's when he says this. In Luke, Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he says, Watch out, be on guard against all forms of greed. Watch out. Pay attention to this. He, there's any other number of things that he says, including here in the Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at this morning, or, or that, you know, within the context of what we're looking at this morning, in which he doesn't say, watch out, be on guard. Think about all the things that he teaches throughout his ministry on um, adultery or um, any, any number of things. And he doesn't say it concerning those things, watch out, but concerning greed, he does. The reason why your eye can be darkened when it comes to greed is very possible not to notice, not to see that you are darkened in heart when it comes to wealth. Again, whether you have too much or too little, look back at what he says in uh, verses 26 and 28. He's concerned about what we're seeing there. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap. Verse 28, and why you're anxious about clothing, consider the lilies of the field. Pay attention to these things, right? He talks about the lilies of the field. He talks about the birds of the air. He's saying there, the whole earth is filled with light concerning the reality of God's provision and his care for your, his own people. Just like the darkened eye can't see, even though the light in the room might be adequate, so too the darkened eye cannot see that the earth is full of testimony to the provision of God if we will but see it. But if our Hearts are darkened. We miss it. And that's Jesus' concern in this passage. Your eyes are darkened, Jesus is saying. He tells us that story about our eyes being darkened in order to reveal something about what our hearts really treasure, about what our hearts love. Take a look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, back in 2012, there's an article in the Kiplinger Report titled, Your Worst Money Problems Are All in Your Head. Your worst money problems are all in your head. Here's a quote from that article. Most dieters can recite the calorie, carbohydrate, and protein counts for hundreds of foods, and they know how many calories a half hour on the treadmill will burn. Never before has there been such an abundance of knowledge about nutrition and exercise in this country, and yet, as a nation, we're obese, because it's never, ever just about the food. It's the same for money problems. People have got every budget app there is, but can't seem to get control of their spending. Or they're so paralyzed by their fear of running out of money that they're unable to deploy their assets into wise investments. 
Such money hang-ups can run the gamut from minor glitches to full-blown disorders, but they have this in common. You can't cure them simply by studying up on finance or investments. In other words, it's never just about the money. And Jesus would say the same thing. It's never just about the money. What are the treasures that Jesus is referring to back there in verse 19? It's not ultimately about the money. It's about what the money can acquire. It's about the thing that you truly love and truly desire. It's what you think the money can get you. After you've met your financial obligations, after you've paid your mortgage, after you've paid your rent, after you've taken care of utilities and food and the car payment and whatever else, the question we need to ask is where does our money go? To what does it most effortlessly flow? Because wherever it flows reveals what your true treasure is. Now, the Kiplinger report would say the answer is to isolate the regions of your brain that seem to be malfunctioning. And, and the Bible says, no, the problem is your heart. The problem is your heart. You're either spending or saving everything in an effort to obtain something that money can't buy. You know, why do you look to the, the, the vacation or the, the um, you know, the, the wide array of clothes or shoes or, or the, the fancy car, or whatever the case may be? What is it actually that you're trying to buy? Is it comfort? Is it prestige? Is it being seen as a success? Is it security? Is that why you're so, you know... <laughs> close-fisted when it comes to the wealth that God has provided to you, that you're pretty sure that money can buy you security. Jesus says you can't add a single hour to your life. The bottom line is we're anxious because our hearts are darkened. The money itself is not the problem. The problem is what we love. So let's move third to the generous heart. Now, we're going to talk about the practice of generosity a little bit as we see it in this passage, and then we're going to jump to wrap up with how we get there. How do we get to that kind of generosity of heart? Jesus says in verse 33 of chapter 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That word seek is a word that is really make of first priority. It's a very strong, intense word. Not kind of think about, but actually pursue. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says in verse 33. In verses 19 through 20, he was saying the same thing. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. What does it mean? Stott answers a question, you know, coming back to John Stott. What does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? To lay up treasure in heaven is to do anything on earth whose effects, whose effects last for eternity. Anything on earth whose effects last for eternity. Eternity. Whenever you're investing in the life of another person, I think about the 50 people that, that Kurt just thanked God for in the prayer. They're going to be serving on Sunday morning in our discipleship, time of discipleship. There's an investment in eternity that's being made with time. I think of financial resources that are given to support ministries around the world, the work of Jesus Christ around the world. There's an investment that will last for eternity, because these are eternal truths that are being poured into the lives of people who desperately need Jesus. 
These are the kind of things that involve, you know, storing up treasures in heaven, seeking first the kingdom of God. It's asking what is Jesus' purpose on earth, his eternal purpose on earth, and how can I align myself with his purpose and give my resources, be it my money or my time, my energy, my gifts, in alignment with his purposes in the world. Because our heart's purposes, apart from Christ, are often going in an entirely different direction. The grace of God brings our hearts into alignment with the, the one who has loved us so much and rescued us from where our path would normally lead, inevitably lead. Jesus rescues us to bring us into alignment with his kingdom purpose in the world. We talked a few weeks ago about how the, 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 the most satisfying life is a life walking in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what we were created for. And here, when it comes to money, is a way in which that good life lines up. Lord, you've, you've given me resources, Lord, either much or little. How are you calling me to align these resources with your purposes in the world? Now, we get a great example of this number of them. Actually, and I want to hold up this little devotional. I got... Uh, the PCA Foundation, Presbyterian Church in America, that's our denomination, put together this little five-day devotional on generosity, gifts for a king. Um, I found out uh, a few months ago that they were giving them away for free, so I got 150 of them, I think. They're, they're out there. They're on the table. Um, I want to encourage you to grab one on the way home. Um, it's, a, it's an excellent devotional. It's really good. What it does is take a look at five examples in the Gospels of people who are being generous toward Jesus. There are all number of ways in which you see generosity in the Bible, but there are only five in which there are people who are specifically being generous toward Jesus in some way. Everything from the, the women who supported the disciples in Jesus' ministry to the guy who gave up his donkey. So Jesus could ride it into Jerusalem, right? Five of those only are in the New Testament, and this, uh, this author breaks down those five. I want to encourage you to, to take one of those with you, but I want to give another example of, a, of a, a woman in the Bible that Mark talks about. He's not, she's not giving directly to Jesus, but she's giving to God's purposes. This is in Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 12, and uh, this is the the woman who put in her two small coins, her two lepta. Uh, the setting is in the court of women, the inner court of the temple, just past the court of the Gentiles. The offering box that people were dropping their coins into were these uh, shofar chests. There were 13 of them that lined the outside of the court of women. They were large metal trumpet-shaped vessels that were uh, narrow at the top and then widened out at the bottom, and Jesus had found a place to sit just opposite the chest that lined the wall in the court of women. And he was watching people put their offering into them. And, you know, you can imagine the, the loud clanging in these metal shofars as people who took their coins and, and dropped them in, and maybe, maybe some were a little tempted to throw them in so people could really hear how much they were giving. I don't know. The text doesn't say that, but we know our hearts, don't we? Jesus noticed a widow putting these two coins into the chest. They were known as lepta, which literally means a tiny thing. They were the smallest copper coins in circulation at the time. Two lepta 
were worth about one sixty-fourth of a denarius. Now, a denarius was a, a day's wage for a common laborer. So today, assuming an eight-hour workday of $15 an hour, her two lepta would be equivalent to $1.92. Jesus called his disciples over, and he began to teach them. And he said her gift exceeded that of all the wealthy people around them who had been giving and making a show of their giving. They had given a percentage of their wealth, according to the law, of God in the Old Testament, presumably without pain, if they were wealthy, they were giving 10%, probably didn't hurt much if they were wealthy, whereas she had given everything. She put in both coins, not just one, both. The text said she literally gave her whole life. Now, I'm not saying that you know, all Christians are to live a life of poverty. I'm not saying that at all. Um, Timothy, I'm sorry, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 5 that if we don't provide for the needs of our family, we're worse than an unbeliever. So if we were to say, uh, you know, spouse, kids, sorry, we're giving everything away, good luck with that, you know, we're, we're standing uh, in judgment before God's word. We're not providing for our family. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul instructs Timothy to tell the wealthy to be generous with their wealth, not to give it all away and become poor. So we're not called to a life of poverty. Most of us, some are, but most of us are not called to a life of poverty. We are all called to lives of radical generosity. Every one of us. So what is the source of this radical generosity? And it, it boils down to this. Jesus must be the treasure of your heart. Jesus must be the treasure of your heart. Verse 24, that love and devotion to God that you see there. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That love and devotion to God. Where does it come from? That, that love within us. Well, we, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. We love because he first loved us. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. How do we take God's love for us, demonstrated at the cross of Jesus Christ, and apply it to how we use our wealth so that we can respond with our wealth in love to him? Paul answers that question for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's challenging the church in Corinth to sacrificially give in order to meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem. There's a famine in Jerusalem. Christians there are starving. And Paul is collecting offerings from the churches around Asia Minor so that they can provide resources for the church, for the Christians in Jerusalem. And he points in that letter in 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, he points to the impact of God's love among the churches in Macedonia. The churches in Macedonia were like the woman in Mark chapter 12. They had nothing and they gave everything. And then he points to the supreme demonstration of God's love at the cross and applies it to how we use our money. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor for your sake, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He applied the, the gospel to the issue of wealth, 
and called us out of love and gratitude for the cross to respond with generosity toward Jesus ultimately and his purposes in the world. Our hearts are anxious because our hearts are darkened. But the money itself is never, ever the problem. The problem is what we love. Tim Keller uh, famously said, you will always give everything to have your heart's true treasure. Jesus is the only treasure who gave everything to have you. You will always give everything to have your heart's true treasure. Jesus is the only treasure who gave everything in order to have you. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53 said that of the Messiah, he will look upon the results of his suffering and be satisfied. And 1 Peter 2 says, you are the people upon whom he looked. You are a people for God's own possession. When you see that Jesus sacrificed everything in order to have you, you have a good eye. When you see that Jesus sacrificed everything in order to have you, you see the world in an entirely different way. It's always been true that Jesus has been about advancing his kingdom in the earth, building his church until the end will come. But as you see that Jesus sacrificed everything in order to have you, your eyes let in the light. Your heart is flooded with grace. And you can align yourself with God's purpose in the world when it comes to your wealth. Because you know that your true treasure is in heaven waiting for you. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you would help us to have a heart change. Lord, I pray that the first thing that people do as they leave here this morning will not be to go download a budget app. That is, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. But Lord, let the first thing that we do be that we commit to growing deeper in our acknowledgement of, appropriation of this gospel doctrine, this truth that you, Lord Jesus, though you were rich, became poor so that we, through your poverty, might become rich. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.